Lord, we pray for the leadership of this church as we walk forward in some of these uncertain times and what we're supposed to do and what we're going to do. We pray that you would um, lead us. Lord, we pray for your wisdom and your faithfulness that it would come in our decisions as a church, as family members. I pray that um, we would become disciple makers of our children. Guide direct us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids, you can go down to Children's Church. They will be wrapping up their Christmas series this week as we wrap up ours. Thank you, worship team. Appreciate all that you guys do. It's I could jammed on that one for another <laughs> 15 minutes. We would have, but Facebook would have gotten mad. Seems like sometimes everything just disappears when we get, get a good groove going on. And a blessing. I'm, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm excited and hesitant about going into this next series. I'm, and I'm excited about it because it's something I've never done before. Um, but it, as Craig would say, well, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on Revelation. Facebook's what he told me when I said that I was going to do that. And I'm like, yes, they do. And I really don't. I don't have an opinion. I, I don't necessarily hit the middle of the road. There's some things I take a stance on, but there's some things that I'm kind of like, yeah, you can be right. But I could be too. So... That's just going to wait how it's going to be. Because we don't know. It, you're studying the unknown. It's like an episode right out of Frozen 2. Into the unknown. Oh boy. I have a feeling this sermon's either going to be a, a hit or a flop on the two. But it's not going to be a mediocre one this morning. So <clears throat> maybe I better pray some more. <laughs> I think I'm ready. Um. I was praying a lot last night. I couldn't fall asleep, and that's what you do, especially as a pastor when you can't can't fall asleep. You just pray. Uh, I mean, somebody out there in your congregation needs to be prayed for. And about time to hit the right person, then you fall asleep. So um, it's just it's hard time when you get into those. Uh, you start praying for those later in the alphabet, and you're, you got to make it through. Whew. In Christianity, the whole the. The whole Bible is dependent on Jesus, isn't it? If you look at from the beginning of the Bible, God promises a Savior, and at the end of the Bible, the Savior comes and he is, he is triumphant on the throne. And it's all dependent on Jesus. And Jesus' mission was to be the payment for sin. And if you look at, especially in the book of John, you see God talking about the timing of Christ. And, and and he always says, it's not my time, it's not my mission, in a sense, is part of that as well. And he shows his power over death by resurrecting from the grave. And that's pretty powerful. And if we don't have that, we don't have Christianity, and if we don't have that, we everything comes unhinged from following Jesus. And I think one of the most compelling evidences to the resurrection are his disciples. If you look at his disciples, why in the world would they be willing to die for a dead man? Really, when 
they're going to, they're willing to die for somebody um, that said he resurrected from the grave. So that gives them an opportunity to possibly resurrect from the grave, right? <clears throat> but really when it comes down to it, if he doesn't resurrect from the grave, why in the world would you want to die? You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to. And so, more so on that, furthermore, I guess, why would they be willing to be beat, to be cast out of their society, their culture, their mocked and killed? The resurrection was false. I've been thinking about morality a lot this week. I've been thinking about, like, why would you... Why are you convicted of something that's wrong? What what is there even the authority to convict you, unless there's something higher than you to do the convicting? And that's it in a nutshell what I've been going through. But if you think about this, think about somebody. If you were to insult somebody, and we say, "Well, I probably shouldn't have said that," but so then we go justify why we did it. So, But why is there this hesitancy if we knew we shouldn't have said that in the first place? Why, why is there this, why do we even question our, our behavior unless there's behavior to question? There has to be a right behavior if we just felt that we had a wrong behavior. That's what I'm trying to say, right? There has to be something that sets a standard of, of right, and Christ does that. His lifestyle models that completely. And guess what? He's coming back again. And this time he's not going to come back as a timid uh, savior, as some saw him. He's going to come back as a very forceful conqueror. And this continues our hope in the Messiah. Doesn't it? Ultimately, that's why we come to church when he told us to. And, but he said he's, he's going to prepare a place for us like we read in the call to worship this morning. And then he is also going to come back and he's going to be our conquering king. And in that, we have some responsibilities, mostly for ourselves, but some for our brothers and sisters, Right? We have, like, like Beth was lamenting over, we have family members that may not be going to heaven. And what would be worse is when they think they kind of, they think they, they're going to. And that, that's a little bit of a problem with America, is that we feel that we grew up in America, that we are, we know Jesus, and we're going to go to heaven. I'm a good person, I'm going to go to heaven. And I think... You look at the persecution across the world, they call Americans Christians, whether they are Christian or not, as we know them to be. But they call them Christians, those Christians, those infidels. Well, they think we're Christians because guess what? A lot of non-Christians call themselves Christ followers. And it just gets me into this place of wanting to define that. What does that look like? Well, we would say in the youth group, it looks like surrender, doesn't it? We want to surrender ourselves. We want to surrender 
our attitudes. We want to surrender our moral character in submission to Christ because we are stewards, which we will find at the end of Matthew chapter 24, that we're all stewards and that we have this body as a gift from above and we want to do the best job that we have of it. And when we can look at it in that aspect with humility, it really, I don't know, kind of puts me in my place and that's not very high up on the totem pole, is it? I hope that's kind of where it puts us all. So as we wrap up this Christmas series and we move on to Revelation, I'd be remiss not to go into 24 to kind of bridge those two gaps. Why do we go to 20, Matthew 24? Because it is the roadmap, I would say, for the end times. Jesus says this is what's going to happen. This is some of the expectations of what's going to happen. And it will help bridge the two series together from Christmas to Revelation with this passage today. In addition, I must say Matthew 24 is a warning of the end of times. It warns us <clears throat> that being a follower of Christ Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not going to be all just fun and games. Somebody will get hurt. And it challenges us to hold the course in spite of the pain, in spite of the persecution, in spite of um, loving a Savior that the world hates. While Matthew 24 gives us some eerie signs of the end times, it more importantly challenges our lifestyle and how we need to reflect Christ when He comes back. Matthew 24 challenges us with four things when He returns, which we'll talk about today. It is important that we respond to these according to His expectations. Does Christ have expectations for us as Christ followers? Absolutely, he does. I think you can see that in, in several different places. I think even the fruit of the Spirit are expectations that we will grow in those different areas, right? And that is a little bit troubling, and it puts a lot of pressure on us sometimes. But we can also look at Christianity with no expectations as well. Because when we lay that burden on us so hard, sometimes it's so easy to be like, well, I need to be this person. I need to be this person. I'm not that person yet. But we can rest in His grace, can't we? And in that aspect, there are really no expectations for us. So it is one of those good old um, dichotomies that just, you know, they, they kind of rub up against each other in different aspects. So, Jesus speaks about the temple, and he speaks about the future in this next passage. So, Matthew chapter 24, if you want to open your Bibles, you'll find it that we're reading out of Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Now, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is walking out of the temple and he weeps over Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And he's like, this is where prophets come to die. How would you like to be like God's city and that's God's prophets come to die there? And he knows that's where he is coming to die. And his disciples are, are oohing and eyeing over all the 
construction. And he's like, you don't get it. This is not what it's... And he bursts into these verses of scripture. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? You notice they asked two questions there. What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? There's two different things they're talking about. And Jesus gives them two different answers. He first talks about the temple, and then he talks about the end of the world. Okay? And as the saying goes, pride comes before the fall. This is also the case with Jerusalem, the leadership of the Jews. They are rejecting Jesus because of their pride of the system that they have created. And that creates quite the problem, doesn't it? Because you're going to see that they don't submit to the Lord, they don't repent, and they get sacked in about 40 more years after Christ comes. And it's devastating. And so when Jesus predicts that, the, no, that not one stone will be left on top of another, this definitely points to the fall of the temple. Now, the problem with staying there is it doesn't fit. A lot of these other things, they don't fit just for that period of time. And as you see in prophecies in the Old Testament, what do we have? We find out that, yes, it's a time for maybe Isaiah's time, but it's also a time for Christ's first coming and for Christ's second coming, as we talked about last week. But the problem with this one is, Christ has come, and he's giving the prophecy, so it's for this time that's coming soon, and the time that's going to come in the future. And I really think it deals with both of those. So, as they get prideful, they look at these stones, they see how large they are, they see how wonderful they are, and some of those stones are large and wonderful. They still can see the temple stones today in the weeping wall, in Jerusalem, those stones are absolutely gigantic. And for them to be able to move them and stack them as high as they did was probably a literal act from God um, to give somebody the, the engineering skills to get this building built. It was just amazing. And the Romans had no problem turning it into a pile of rubble, did they? They brought it in, they came in with slaves, the same people that they've imprisoned all over the world, and they said, come in and destroy the city, and they leave one wall. Why, why was the weeping wall left? Is this new for Romans to do? No. Every society that the Romans conquered, they would leave generally the tallest wall in the city as a reminder of how great you used to be, and how mighty we are, because we conquered you, and you can't stand against us. Wow. Talk about demoralizing a, a culture. This is the, the people that have occupied the Jewish people, and the Jewish people, they try to rebel against them, and they lose. Bad. 
As the disciples marvel at some, something man has done, Jesus laments or he shows sorrow at the same sight. They're like, look at how wonderful we are. And he's like, yes, but look how broken and rotten your hearts are. And the disciples will get this. They'll understand eventually. The Pharisees, some of them get that too. We know that Nicodemus does. I think, I really think if you've ever watched the, there's a show out called The Chosen. They do a good job of depicting like Nicodemus's journey to following Jesus. It's fiction, um, but it's based on some of the scriptures, but it's still a biblical fiction, but it's a really neat show. And I think they do a very good job of keeping the Jewish culture in there and some, how it could have went about, possibly. I, I highly recommend it. So, the pride of the Jewish people on their own strength. They say that they're relying on God, but really they're relying on their own system because their systems become legalistic and, and broken. And it's not good enough. It's not holding up. So there's this inquiry by the disciples of what is to come and what happens later that night. It all comes from his disciples. They ask him, you know, how's this all going to go down? And as I said before, the I believe the answer is twofold. Jesus is replying to the walls and the temple, but he's also giving us some of the best insights of the, of the end time passages here in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, several different signs. I think it's from 9. And it's a re, it really is a good blueprint of all the end times as how they will come together. And it's important for you to know as we study this. It's also important to know that I am not an end times prophecy guy. I don't sit around and study this all the time. Therefore, we're not going to take a whole three years to get through the first three chapters of, of Revelation. It's going to go um, probably a chapter a Sunday or so, maybe more than that. I don't know, seven churches, you could probably do seven Sundays right there. But after that, it'll go much, much quicker. And it, I like to take things at face value. And as I learned the Jewish culture, and as I learned um, some of the things that were going on during Jesus' time, it helps me to see the insight more and more in the Old Testament. Now, as I learned Zechariah, and Isaiah, and Daniel, and, and some of these other smaller um, prophets, I look at Revelation, and I'm like, aha, that's where this is. But I don't know that. I'm still a student, and I can say, oh man, when I read the passage, but I can't be like, oh man, and then recall it necessarily for a sermon. I'm doing my best, and I'm sure by the time we get to the end of Revelation, it will be a lot more informed than the front side of the study. So, with that being said, here we go. I do take things at face value, and... Um, Many prophecies, they have to do with the fall of Jerusalem, they have to do with the first coming of Christ, and they have to do with the second coming of Christ. Um, we are going to be focusing more on, this, on the second coming. With that being said, I know Matthew 24, it deals with the future, doesn't it? How do I know? Because Christ is coming and he's talking. Uh, the fall of Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, not one or the other, but both. How much applies to one or the other? 
that's where I don't necessarily know. And here we go. Matthew 24, 4-29 gets into the thick of it. The signs of the times. Now Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. Then you will be arrested and persecuted and killed. You will be hated over all the world because you are my followers, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it, and then the end will come. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judah must flee to the hills, and the person, a person out on the deck of the roof must not go down to the house to pack, and the person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days, and pray for your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be a greater anguish than any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it, for false messiahs and, and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders, so at, as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go look or Look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the, the anguish of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, and the stars will fall from the skies, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. <coughs> Unfortunately today, this is the passage that most Christians want to focus their time and energy on, while they really need to be focusing on the next passage, which is Matthew 25 and the end of, of 24. Why? Because Matthew 25 is about your state of readiness. To stay in the state of readiness. As a Christ follower, we need to have the expectation that Christ is coming back tomorrow, and therefore we have the urgency to tell other people that Christ is coming back. We have the urgency to let them know that we um, that they're going to hell if they don't respond to this message. Is your soul 
or your heart prepared to meet the Lord? Is your soul or your heart prepared to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet your Maker? If you're not sure, then the answer is no. Back in Matthew 24, it's important to note that the disciples were asking for signs for two different events. The signs of the destruction of the temple was with the God. They weren't really expecting those signs, I don't think, but that's what Jesus says. And then the signs of the coming of his coming back and the return and the end of the world. The phrase the end of the world does not mean the dissolving dissolving of the universe, but the end of the world as we know it, and Christ will establish his authority. Some will say that is the end of the government that we know today and will be established as a government under Christ. I have a hard time saying that because a lot of people are miscuing that today. I don't even want to go there. But I will if you want to ask me about it later. So, but I just get a little bit annoyed by that. Um, Because a lot of that government authority stuff is not necessarily in the Bible. You're taking it from other sources, and that's why I get annoyed by it. Um, Because we don't know um, what that stuff is. And I don't think that's what, I don't even know if we're supposed to know that stuff now. We're supposed to be getting ready for our Savior's return, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're, and then we have a responsibility, and we should have a longing in our heart to get our neighbor ready as well, to let them know, to warn them that Christ is coming back, and we have a responsibility to listen and obey his commands. And love one another means that we need to love God first. And if we're going to love God first, we need to obey his commands. What does that look like? Well... That's why we're going through John as well as it's hidden revelation. Got to get a little bit of all this to get the big picture in. So I came up with ten different signs from this passage. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure you could break it down more. But I went with the ten major ones with the biggest sign of the last days is deception. You see this mentioned three times. You see it mentioned right away in verse 5. It comes in verse 11, and then you see it capped off at the end in verse 24. Let me read those for you. In verse 5, Jesus warns about deception. It says, For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. Well, how do we talk about being prepared for counterfeits? Do you study counterfeits? No, you know about counterfeits. But you study the real thing, right? Then you'll know a counterfeit. Verse 11 says, Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Well, when I see prophet, I think of people talking about end-time prophecies, end-time things. But I also think of false miracles and things. If they're truly a prophet, they will be able to pull something like that. I know the Antichrist is going to be able to do that. And then in verse 24, for False messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders, right there, so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Now, what does that mean, if possible, even God's chosen ones? Well, if you're a Calvinist, you will say you are not able to be deceived, because if you're God's elect, then you will not be deceived. So it's all the people that go to church that look like they're supposedly Christians, 
And in that aspect, as a little bit more Arminian, I would say, yes, I agree with that most of the way. Um, but, yeah, it's people that go to church that they, uh, they have a good moral standing, but they don't have a surrender in their heart to the Messiah. That's why we get... Have you noticed, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a pastor, but there's a big push against... Um, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that one is against the rapture. It doesn't say in the Bible that. It does imply the rapture quite a bit. It doesn't say the word rapture in the Bible, which is kind of a little bit of a... A little bit of deception there. Because it implies the rapture in the Bible. It does imply it. When the rapture's gonna happen, happen, happen. It's, it's a new word, it's a new thing. When it's gonna happen, that is up for a lot of debate. Right? Even amongst the church. Why? Because it's the unknown, right? Busted and frozen two again. We don't know. And then, as with other things, we get uh, these false prophets, these things. We don't know what they're going to look like. We don't know the authority that they're going to come with. It's going to be very deceptive. And so the elect, or those chosen ones, will be deceived. Well, before the Holy Spirit was in Peter's heart, he was easily deceived, wasn't he? And so if we have that surrender to the Holy Spirit, He will show us what is right and true and good. Amen? Amen. So, what is our best we weapon? None of you were there. Weapon. I'm having trouble with my, my weight today. What is our best weapon against deception? It's God's Word, Right? It is prayer, but first, it is God's Word. It is true. God's Word is true. If we haven't learned anything from Community Bible Study or BSF, it is that God's Word is true. And I pass that along to White Rose today. God's Word is true. There is a movement to push against that today. There is a word... To, they say, well, God's word is allegory. There are some allegories in God's word. As in all good writing, there are allegories. But God's word as a whole, it has an underlying truth that lays down a foundation that we can stand on and is literal. <laughs> and there's also allegory that can go with it. For example, even Jesus' parables. Right? It has an underlying truth that is in that parable, but it's an allegory to point to that truth. Okay? But we got we got to use our wisdom and our discernment and prayer to figure out what those truths are. Right? And those truths have been around for thousands of years now. And it seems like a lot of those are getting debated in the last hundred. And there is even the last fifty. Well, that the Bible doesn't really say that. I mean, it says it, but what it means is this. Oh my goodness, no, it doesn't. It means what it says. Don't even try to get out of it. That, that's like me trying to get out of doing the dishes. 
You know? Well, it looked dirty, but if you just run the hose over it a little bit, you're just fine. So you don't use them next time. And they're all crusted and wrong. But isn't that a great picture of what we if we try to distort the truth and we try to it's like crusty rotten dishes. And then you're gonna bake something on a foundation that's already ruined. You can't do that. Told you we're gonna have excitement this morning. <laughs> This is why we need to study God's Word. If you're saying, well, Pastor, I don't understand God's Word. What, what does James say? He says to ask the Lord for wisdom, and He will give it to you. Lord, I don't understand the passage that I just read. Read it again. I don't have... You know what the good news is about that? This, for any of you guys that get stuck on a passage that you don't understand... Here's one good praise you can say. Lord, praise God that I don't have to read any further in the Bible until I get this passage down. I am stuck on this thing and I'm going to work through this until I get these five verses up to where I can understand. So now I'm going to ask my pastor. I'm going to ask other people's opinion. What do you think about this passage? What does it say to you? How am I going to get... Guess what that is called? It's called meditating on Scripture. That's what it looks like. I don't understand this. Well, these are the first five verses I've ever read in the Bible. Well, praise John. You don't have to go any farther. <laughs> right? You can go to the book of John and start the first five verses of the book of John and be very confused. And I would have sympathy as your pastor on the confusion there. Okay? The Bible doesn't always make sense until you can kind of see the bigger picture. Sometimes it means we have to continue reading. You just said it in passing. But you definitely need to stop and ask good questions there, don't you? Stop and ask good questions. The Lord taught that way. Jesus taught by asking questions. Did you know that? That's a very Jewish way to go. So what are some of these deceptions? Where are they going to look like? You look at Romans chapter 16, verse 18. It says, smooth talk and flattering words. Be weary of someone who is quick to build you up is one way I would say. Oh, you just you just look so good today, Shane. What do you want? <laughs> right? What do you want? Oh, that sermon that you gave today was just the bee's knees. The bee's knees. I love that one. Right? I'm also, what do you want? And as I've heard um, one of the great preachers says, don't tell me that. One of the uh, Satan just told me that five minutes ago. I don't want my pride to get creeping up on me. You can say, praise God for his word and how you delivered it today, maybe. That might be a better way to go. It gets the glory where it goes, right? It's supposed to go to the Lord, not to the pastor. Hebrews 13, 9 says, all kinds of unusual teachings. I got an unusual teaching. I got a special way to look at the Bible. I got, let's look at the specific verse and take it across the whole Bible and see how it implies being careful of those. It says that in Hebrews 13, 9. What do we have? We have a message of grace in the Bible. And the best example of this is Christ dying on the cross. We don't need any more than that right there. That is very important. 
Yes, it's fun to look at some of these other things. Yes, it is exciting to get something new. But we need to remember that it all comes down to the resurrection. It all comes down to Jesus and his life and how he lived. And that is number one most important. Amen? Amen. It's, I, I kind of feel like I'm giving a lecture to my kids. Now, I'm not going to talk about Revelation until we get these ground rules set, okay? Do you understand this? <laughs> Oh boy. You didn't know this was going to be so much fun today, did you, Phil? Colossians 2 8 says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. I ask you a question. Could it ever be? Wrong to take communion because you're just taking communion. Absolutely, right? You need to know why are we taking communion, right? Why do we have the tradition in church? You could challenge any tradition in the church the same way. And if you can't, answer the why, then you got to question the tradition. Right? Why do we have a Christmas tree in our house? It's tradition. That is not a good enough answer. You better have a better reason than that. Because technically, Christmas tree roots, they come from paganism. Right? But Martin Luther did a good job of changing it to making it a very Christian symbol. Uh, evergreen, ever, everlasting life, we celebrate everlasting life that started with the birth of Christ. That's why we have a Christmas tree in our house. And I was like, hmm, I didn't know that until I was like 15. <laughs> right? So challenge some of these things. Just because it's human tradition doesn't mean it's biblical tradition. Just because we burn candles in the back of our church. I don't know why we do that. Well, you should question that because sometimes those candles don't point to Christ at all. Right? That's a pagan religion that's crept its way into certain churches. That's wrong. Sometimes when we forget to light our candles up here, oh boy, I did it finally. It took five Sundays, but I finally forgot to light them. But these are to remind us of the Advent season, to remind us that what Christ has done for us. So I will bust through that the next much faster. Rumors of war. Wars and rumors of wars. Do we have those today? Yes. Our own country is always in conflict. We see some, we saw some amazing peace deals happen over the last few years as well that are monumental. But we also have some Wars that are stirring up, and there's unrest in Africa like there's never been before. And Middle East, it's just shifted. It's it's a different country, different different era. Famines. Africa is recovering from the worst famines ever in, in 2018. I'm not saying that 2019 was better, but it was at least had enough water to not be qualified as a famine here. Pestilence. 
I'm just so glad we don't have pestilence. So like, I look at the fact. I, I thought like pests, like maybe like locusts and things. No, it's like disease, like oh maybe COVID nineteen. Right? That is a birth pain. That means that it's approaching the end times. And Christ lets those he pulls his hand off just a little bit and allows us to see what could happen before he puts it back down. What is our response as a church? What is our response? as a nation that's supposedly Christian nation. Well, we've seen a little bit of a drive-back to church in the youth group. We've seen a few visitors here at White Rose. But ultimately, what's it come down to? It comes down to us inviting and bringing that into our conversation. What do you think about that? Yeah, you ever think about that as, like, doomsday stuff? What do you know about doomsday stuff? What do you believe about it? Boom. You're right there. Whoa. It's simple conversation, right? It takes practice. So I was working on this on Christmas Eve. Number five is earthquakes in verse seven. You can go to U.S. Geological site and it will tell you how many earthquakes happened that day. This was about four o'clock in the afternoon. We had 69 earthquakes happen on Christmas Eve alone. Some of them in the Richter scale around five, five and a half. And some of them happening, there were two or three happening right when I was uh, looking on the site, which is really kind of cool, and I kind of want to put it as a little mini browser in my, wow, yeah, I mean, and just report to everybody how many earthquakes we have a day. But it was, it was interesting. The earth is at unrest. There were more consequences to the fall of man than just us sinning. The earth was in unrest, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. We get more and more earthquakes all the time, more volcanoes and things. We have many martyrs, and now we don't necessarily see that necessarily in America in the sense that people are dying. I think they're getting censored a lot more, but we do see that in Africa a ton more since some of these countries have fallen. We see this in Syria immensely. We see this in Turkey um, incredibly. We see this in North Korea, which is the most dangerous place for a Christian to live in the world. We see this in China. They are wiping out churches um, as we speak. But the church is flourishing a lot of those places too. Anytime you try to stomp out Christ, He will come back many fold which will get us until like point 10 or so we see false prophets whether it's TV preachers it's false religious I had a buddy um, he went to confront one of his longtime pastor friends he said he took scripture out of context and he basically said that if people are sinning we should hate the sinner. We should hate them, have nothing to do with them. The Bible does not say that in that passage of Scripture. It says, you could, if you want to hate anything, you could hate the sin, but we need to come alongside them and restore them gently. And the guy wouldn't repent. And he actually had his buddy, my buddy, and it used to be his buddy, escorted out, a police escort out of that church. 
Because he was confronting him about the scripture that he said, broadcast across America from the pulpit, wrong. It's unfortunate. There's false religions and there's anti-religious movements. A lot of atheists in, in the United States today, they don't like uh, to hear that they're doing something wrong. They don't like to have a moral standard because that means they have morals to stand on and they don't want to stand on anything. They want to be able to kill. They want to be able to have um, satisfied with pleasures whenever, however they want. There's increased evil and a loss of fervent love. And I think we see this a lot. And this is one that really hits the church because we're supposed to set the example in fervent love, aren't we? I think that's the advantage of a small church. But when we get corruption in a small church, it can be very devastating, can it? When there's conflict within a church, it, it can be very devastating across, across the board. We've seen that here even at White Rose sometimes. And we need to come together and speak the truth in love with grace, right? There's genocide that we see all across the world, and we see it here in the United States, right? In abortion. Those are, that's a person that's being, that we will see in heaven, I believe. All those babies that have been aborted, we will see them in heaven, and they will be crying out against us. Why didn't we stand up for life more? Christ is about life. So I get to think about, this is a little bit of a side topic, but uh, I talked to Jill about this a little bit. What would you do if we became apocalyptic around here? What would you do? Would you create a bunker? Would you stockpile food? Would you do this? Would you get a gun? Would you do this? What are, what are things you would do? And I was like, part of me wants to do all those things because we're supposed to, to fight for our life, right? We're supposed to fight for life. But part of me is kind of like, well, I could just go preach out in the corner and get it over with quick. <laughs> you know? Because it's like, I don't know. So when she asked me, I, I don't know. I don't know what I do. I still don't really know what I do. I think I'd fight. I think that's what my natural instinct is. But I don't know. Um, how to fight is a different way. Fight like Jesus did. He fought with compassion and love and truth and just amazing. I hope I can duke it out with somebody like he did because he was just a genius at it. And the one bright glimmer of hope in all this, number nine, worldwide preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Wow. The gospel will be preached across the world. Do we have this happening today? It is getting closer and closer all the time. If you have an opportunity to support Bible translators, I would encourage that. That is one of the best ways to get God's word into all these places. There's so many subgroups and subgroups of subgroups of languages that need their own version. It is it's mind-boggling. And what technology has helped to, to increase this today is amazing. And to see, to take, oh, maybe you go like with a common tongue. Um, they, they've been putting the Bible on MP3 
um, sticks so they can plug them in and listen to them. So they have the Bible, and sometimes the Bible teaching to teach them how the basics of the Bible. And that's really neat um, what they're doing with these different translations. There's different Bible studies. Radio ministry still is thriving in Africa right now. Um, all those are very important to spread the gospel. And depending on the stats that you look at, Christianity is still the fastest growing religion in the world. Sometimes they put a second to Islam, but there's really no, there's no competition between those two. They are way outscaling all the other religions in the world. And what is so attractive about Christianity? It's the peace that passes understanding and the joy that is in our hearts. And when we can display that joy on a full scale, there's nothing that can compete with that. And then you find that it, it, it goes in with God's Word and a foundation of morality. It really is uh, the whole package. Then finally, we've got two more. So I guess I have 11. Uh, the sacrilegious object in the temple. Now, this is one of those prophecies that happened at the fall when Titus came in and sacked Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple. So Jesus was pointing that, but I believe it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. In the end times, we will see a desecration of the temple. What's that mean? We're going to see the temple built again. It means we're going to see sacrificial things come back into the Jewish people, and um, God's going to show up in a mighty way. And there's nothing new under the sun. You see these things repeat in cycles. It's going to happen again. I, I really do believe. When this happens, it says, pay attention. Why do we need to pay attention? A time of calamity is coming. And that's not good. And then we will see the sun, the moon, and the stars will fall. Now if you read anything in the Bible, you look at Ezekiel, you can see where it talks about a third of the sky, the, the sun, the moon, things of that, the stars falling from heaven. I think the time frame of our time and the angels, God's time, is... Time's going to be no more, and it's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And all that's going to happen. We're going to see it. It's all going to come into culmination. We're going to see these things, and um, it's going to point to God's wrath falling on mankind and the earth. Some of the questions we will answer as we go through is, this, are we going to be around for God's wrath? Well, I will say God's ultimate wrath, no, Christians will not face that. Uh, but are we going to see some of the birth pains? Are we going to see some of the trials? I kind of do think we'll see some of that. Are we going to be here for the tribulation? I believe we're going to be around for some of that. And if we're not, shouldn't we just be prepared to be around for it, just in case it does happen? Yes. Right? That was Pastor Day's philosophy. Be prepared for the worst, hope for the best. Yeah. In that case, I think that's good philosophy. Let's wrap it up. Oh, we have two more passages here, but they're going to go quick. Mostly it's reading the passage. The Son of Man, Matthew 24, 30 through 36. And then at last, the sign of the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. Boom. This is like the biggest sign. So this is number 12, right? The Son of Man appears. And this is going to be a glorious day. And his peace will 
cast out across for his believers. I'm excited. And there will be a deep mourning among all the people of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great authority. Because this is the fear of the Lord, right? This is what it means to fear the Lord. He has the power over our lives. Our sin will be revealed to us. We will mourn over our sin and we will either ask for forgiveness or we will rebel. Right there. Right? We'll say, I don't need you, I need you. I'm coming. Oh Lord, I need you. Right? It's a song. Uh, it's probably several songs. And then he will come, he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and the heaven. Now listen, a lesson from the fig tree, when its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place, which points to the temple being destroyed, right? Right there, he says, this is going to happen. But it's also a cycle. It's going to happen again in the end times. That's how I take that. That's how I interpret that. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. No, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And that points to the wedding. Right? The Father will release the Son to go back to get his church. When the Son is prepared enough, then the bride is prepared enough. And what are we supposed to do as bridesmaids? We're supposed to trim our wicks, keep our lamps oiled and lit and ready to go. Right? Or we can sleep, we can slumber, and we can be lazy and say, Quick, I need something to oil. Go into town and buy your own. I was ready. I have just enough. He's still a ways off. I need to be prepared. Right? That's a parable of Jesus. Then the Son of Man will appear. The Son of Man points to his humanity, the title, the Son of Man. It points to his humanity, right? It also points to him being the second Adam. So something that's pure, something that's without sin. And it also points to him as worthy. Because he's the Son of Man also implies that he is holy. And if he's holy, then we know that he is also part God. And willing and able to be our sacrifice. He will come... He will call his people to him. Many will call this the rapture. And I think it is, but when it is, it's not particularly clear if it's pre, post, or mid in the seven years of tribulation. We'll talk about that some as we get going. What is clear is that we know he is coming again. Right? How do we know that he's coming again? Because he said so. Amen. He said so. Right? And what do we know that about Jesus? He keeps his word. He does. All the earth will know when he comes back. Everybody will know. And all will submit to him. Do you know that? Everyone will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it in joy, in mourning for their sin, but joy that they get to experience it with Him. Some will say it out of resentment and say, yes, you're Lord, but I don't care. Right? I don't want to be in that second one, and I don't want my friends to be in that second one. And so I preach with fervency that we need to let them know what... How should we respond? Well, we find that at the end of Matthew 24. This is it. Verse 37. It says, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like in Noah's day. In the, those days before the flood, the people will enjoy banquets and parties and wedding right up to the time when Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be gathering flour in the middle. One will be taken, the other left. That implies that the believers will be lifted out of the earth, right? That is rapture right there. When, we don't know, okay? This is what we should know in verse 42. Maybe the whole most important passage in Matthew 24 so you, too, must keep watch. You must keep watch. In the Old Testament, it talks about the watchman. We must keep watch. It's the same, same concept here. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Who's the burglar in the story? The Son of Man, right? Jesus is the bad guy, right? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. See, no. No, but we need to keep watch, right? We need to have that urgency. Like, we protect our possessions, so we need to protect our soul. That's what he's saying. Verse 45. A faithful, sensible servant... Is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. This speaks a lot to pastors. This speaks to believers that have been around for a long, long time. We have a responsibility, not to our household, but to our household, to our sphere of influence. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while? He And he begins to beat the other servants, partying and getting drunk, or establishing a hierarchy and a lower archy. Right? Glad we don't have that today in politics. I hope we don't have that today in church, though, right? We are all equal at the foot of the cross. I tell you the truth, the master puts we put in charge of all he owns, but what if the servant and so the master will return unannounced, unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing your teeth. Now I don't like that picture. He will cut him to pieces, and then he will assign him. Okay? It implies that he's still alive in pieces. 
Okay? Do you catch that? That's not good. <laughs> Just so you know, place where the, the worm never dies is another place that that's called, right? Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the demons are in charge of our suffering. I don't want anybody to go to hell. Listening and obeying are shown in our actions. If you don't get anything from anything that I've ever preached, that is the most important. Listening and obeying the Lord are shown in our actions. You see that through the, the whole book of John. And guess who wrote Revelation? John did. I'm sure we'll see it again. Remember this command from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. We must keep watch for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. How are you managing what the Lord has given you? How am I managing what the Lord has given me? Who has the Lord who who has the Lord interested you to be an example to the gospel in their lives? Who's he put in your path that you can set the example? Are you friends? Are all your friends going to heaven? Well good. I'm glad. It's time for new friends. Right? It's time to look at that mission field. Are they all going to hell or we have some of them going to hell? then maybe you need to examine your life and see what kind of example you're setting for them. What are you going to do about it? Are you willing to go through steps to train yourself in the art of the gospel? To be able to have it on your lips? What's your intake? What do you bring into your life? You know, there's a lot of fun things out on TV. But not all that's good. There's a lot of things that teach us how to keep up the Joneses. Those Joneses. Are. <laughs> but there's also a lot of things out there that, that teach us how to give away and not to be like the Joneses at all. And that's that's hard living. That it's I want to be my own God. I I have to fight that all the time. I don't know if you guys have to, but that's probably my biggest sin that I have. I, I want to make myself number one all the time. And I'm very good at it. Um, to not be like that shows the joy of the Lord. So when I have to be strong and courageous, is I also have to be very conscious to do things in love. Not for myself. To give to give. Not give to get. Right? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for that you allow us to have it, to learn from it, to have the choice to choose it or not. Lord, I thank you for the truth in it, and I thank you that it reveals the corruption of my heart. I thank you that you've charged me with this commission, and then you charge all of us with a commission to go forth. Lord, we praise you for the glorious wonder that we have in the gift of morality. We praise you for 
the mighty kingdom that you're establishing first in our hearts. And Lord, give us the desire to share that kingdom with our friends. Lord, I charge this congregation this morning to be on their guard, to stand firm in their faith, because without faith it's an impossible to please God, and to be courageous and strong even when we feel weak, because we know you are there, and you get to shine even brighter in our weaknesses, Lord. Allow us to do everything in love. Guide us and direct us, lead us and protect us as we go. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go forth into the mission field. Amen. Amen.